Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Floss Weekly is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Floss Weekly with Randall Schwartz and Dan Lynch. Episode 158 for March 23rd, 2011. The 2600 Hertz Project. Floss Weekly is brought to you by the MailRoute virus and spam filtering for your email. Visit MailRoute.info for 10% off for the life of your account. It's time for Floss Weekly, the show about free, libre, open-source software, usually weekly, mostly weekly, almost exactly weekly, actually. It's about every seven days, whether I like it or not. I'm Randall Schwartz, your host, Merlin at Stonehenge.com. I try to bring this show to you every week with interesting projects, big ones, little ones, uh, far-reaching ones, near-reaching ones. Well, that, that maybe near-reaching. That doesn't make any sense at all, does it? So uh, <laughs> I, I, you might notice in the background you're not seeing the 43rd floor of the ninth, or the uh, ninth tallest building in L.A. anymore. I'm at my new uh, digs at uh, Media Temple. I am at the second floor of the seventh tallest building in Culver City. There aren't a lot of tall buildings around here. Probably just a few five-story buildings, and that's about it. So uh, really crazy background. It looks like a kitchen, but no, it's actually a conference here. And uh, I want to welcome back for the not having spoken to him for a long time live. I want to welcome back Dan. Lynch. Dan, welcome back. Hi, how are you doing? Yeah, it's good to be back on the same show. Um, yeah. Rather than me uh, trying to trying to fill in as the kind of the Kmart Randall sometimes when you're not around. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's great to be back on the same show. Good to be here. People have wondered if they were actually just the same person now because, you know, they would see you, then they would see me, and maybe, you know, you're me with a little bit of makeup or something, or maybe I'm you with a little <laughs> a bit wig. of, uh, you know, hair. Yeah, yeah it's a shame <laughs> with a like wig that. on, possibly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, uh, my response to that was that would never happen because nobody would mistake my awful code for your obvious, uh, obvious pro programming brilliance, so I don't think there's any doubt on that front. Okay, okay, good, good, good. And I, again, I just want to thank you for taking over the helm as many times as you have in the last uh, last couple of months. That's really helped me on. It's really helped having this show be a regular basis rather than gapping it for three or four weeks at a time as I would have had to have done. So again, thank you. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. All right. All right. Good. So uh, I want to talk about our guest first, and then we've got a little bit of business to take care of. But uh, our guest today is the 2600 Hertz Project. And it's, uh, as far as I can understand from looking at all the stuff, it's about telephony in the cloud. It's about making sure that you can run your voice over IP services you know, in a structured way and talking to carriers and making sure that they're all connected as well and as turnkey as possible so you can just plug the solution in and make it work. We have a couple of people from the company today, uh, 2600 Hertz uh, company, uh, Darren Schreiber, uh, he's like the, the big dude, the head dude there, and also uh, James, I am, I'm going to mispronounce this, I'm Manetti, I'm Manetti. Why doesn't everyone just have like simple consonants and vowels for the last names? Anyway, I'm Manetti, uh, who is uh, one of their chief uh, technical guys, is going to join us in a few minutes, but uh, um uh, before we do that, I have a little bit of business to take care of. We actually have a sponsor again for this week, and I really appreciate it when we have a sponsor. This week, it happens to be MailRoute, MailRoute.info. Businesses of every size use MailRoute. One user or 50,000 users, it doesn't matter. MailRoute protects you from spam and viruses. It simplifies your life and makes your email usable again. MailRoute is a secure hosted service that filters viruses and spam for companies of any size. Whether you're a single user or a company with tens of thousands of employees, MailRoute eliminates viruses and spam, reduces 
reduces the load on your email server, lowers your costs, and makes your email usable again. Typical MailRock customers, like me, see a 95% reduction in their inbound email volume with virtually no false positives. I can attest to that for sure. Leo Laporte loves MailRot. He's been using the service for his domains for more than six years, and MailRot has been his top choice for spam and virus filtering all along. Tom Merritt started using MailRot. We know that he, he now has email domains that he could given up on being able to use as hopeless before. Tom Johnson, the founder and CEO of MailRot, started one of the very first companies in this market back in 1998. That's FrontBridge. FrontBridge was acquired by Microsoft in 2005. Uh, but still offered his Microsoft Exchange hosted services line, but Tom wasn't done though, and he had too many good ideas that he couldn't stand to see go waste, so he started MailRoute, his next generation service for filtering email with a level of accuracy and a price that's unmatchable. There's nothing easier for mail filtering than MailRoute. There's no hardware or software to install, you just sign up. And I believe you, I, I did this a few weeks ago, it was really simple, all I had to do was change the MX records on my server for Stonehenge.com, all of a sudden now my mail goes first to MailRoute and then comes to me, except it's not all the mail, it's just the 5% that's left that's actually not spam maybe more like two percent actually i get a lot a lot of spam but it's now all being filtered by mail never even hits my servers you visit mailroute.info to sign up and as a twit listener you'll get a 10 percent discount for the life of your account that's an important savings there small business accounts start at just two dollars per user per month for 10 users and because of the demand for the twit army mailroute has added a new service for individual users as well uh, less than $30 per user per year for single users. Check that out if you have like one or two people using a domain, maybe the only person using a domain. Very cheap, very effective. No longer you have to work out your own spam fighting stuff. Visit MailRod.info and sign up with the email filtering service that Tom and Leo and Randall use. Uh, now, uh, before we bring the guests on, Dan, uh, do you have any uh, questions or thoughts about our, our guests? The project? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm always very interested to hear about VoIP solutions. I was talking to some of the free switch people at uh, FOSDEM in, in Brussels recently, and I know they have a connection to that, so I'll be interested to find out a bit more about, about their connections to free switch and many of the other great open source VoIP solutions. Absolutely. Well, uh, let's, uh, without further ado, let me make sure all my notes are covered for the beginning of the show. Uh, we are going to talk about some of the new uh, Q2 guests uh, at the end of the show, so stick around if you want to hear a bunch of new guests I've just got lined up. But rather than doing that, let's bring on the guest we actually have for today. Let's start first with Darren. Darren Schreiber, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm super excited to be here. Very good. And where are we speaking to you from? Uh, we are in downtown San Francisco off of uh, 2nd Street uh, in the Financial District. Do you have like a latitude and longitude for that, or are we just going to go by ear? Well, I could get more specific if you really want. I'm just kidding. I'm <laughs> just our, kidding. Our company's uh, headquarters down Okay. Here, and so. also with this, uh, Jonas, uh, I'm going to mispronounce his last name. I'm sorry. James, I am, I am, I, I'm a Netty. I'm a Netty. That's pretty good. Yeah, I'm a Netty. Okay, very good. And where are we speaking to you from? Same place. Next door. Oh, oh can you there. see each other in there or what? We can. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> I love technology. We're sending both of your signals, actually not too far away, only up to the Twit Cottage, and uh, which is just uh, about an hour north of you, so it should be okay. Well, uh, we aren't here to chat about Skype, so let's actually chat about what we came here today. Now, I'll start with Darren. Um, I just sort of gave an overview at the beginning of the show about what this uh, project was about, but if you would go ahead and give us like the 30-second or one-minute overview, that would be, be real handy. So what's the 2600 Hertz project and your company all about? So we are um, here to bring open source projects to the telecom industry that work for both carriers and also uh, mid-sized businesses. A lot of people are trying to get into sort of hosted environment and being their own VoIP provider. 
And um, there's not a lot of tools out there to do that. There's been a lot of tools that are around building a small office or an open source PBX that might sit in a server in your back office, um, but not a tremendous amount of tools for actually running a VoIP carrier. Um, so that's really what we're after. And uh, we want to automate and uh, make it simple to provide either user interfaces for configuring and managing uh, SIP phones and VoIP phones and voice and video phones and all those types of things, uh, while also bringing um, you know integration with billing and the other uh, nine yards you need to have in order to run a carrier taxation, um, all, all the different pieces. They currently are very fractured. They're very expensive. And basically, your capital outlay to run a VoIP carrier uh, hosted service is very, very high. Um, and so our goal is to really lower those costs to, to get into the business. Well, we have a pretty varied audience. So I just want to start by identifying what's VoIP and how is it different from <clears throat> what preceded it? Okay. Uh, so that's easy. VoIP is basically the... Uh, running of your regular telephone line over the internet. That's the simplest explanation. Uh, mm-hmm. It generally refers to using SIP on the internet, although there are services like Vonage and other companies who uh, have a tendency to um, roll out their own codecs and their own signaling protocol. Um, but a lot of carriers are starting to embrace SIP and VoIP. They've been doing it for years on their backhaul because they basically can take these big fiber lines that they've invested in and they can um, you know, take voice channels and run them over the same circuits as they're running data on. And now they're starting to sort of deal with the last mile which is the connection from your home uh, to the carrier. And slowly we're getting more and more and more circuits which are uh, running over the internet or running over DSL or running over cable, any sort of data medium uh, instead of the old analog lines. Most people aren't aware of this, but old phone lines used to require uh, two copper wires that literally run from your house all the way back to some brick building, otherwise known as your central office in your city. So every single house that has a phone line has two copper wires for it and it only, at least, that run all the way back to uh, a central office. Um, That's very expensive to maintain. Uh, The copper itself is getting outdated. It's expensive to um, upgrade the technology to do more unique things. And frankly, people want data. They don't care as much about voice. But, or I should say they they are willing to pay for data uh, and they're becoming less and less willing to pay any sort of significant fee for voice. So the carriers are getting more and more pressed to provide bundles where they still include voice, but um, they're really starting to charge more for data. Now, as I understand it, again, just to bring a little bit more telephony into this, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll show my ignorance in a second, but originally <laughs> back in the old days, yes, you're, like you said, there was like an analog phone in my house, and there were two wires that went somewhere into some central switching thing, and there was these massive things that would actually take these two wires and move them along and connect to some other two wires, and that's how a call was actually made. Somewhere in the in the, I'm going to think the mid-70s, I guess, they replaced that central part of it with digital equipment. So therefore, my two wires went still from my house all the way to some central office. But at some point, it got digitized, and then the switching became digital, and then uh, maybe even carried long distance digitally as well. And But that wasn't internet protocol at that point. That was still like a, a special protocol directly for tel- telephone-to-telephone switching. But you're saying sometime in the last few years, some of the long-distance carriers... Have switched to actually using internet protocol even between long distances? 
That's correct. Um, many, many of them actually have switched to using fiber uh, or data, um, you know, IP-based routing on their back end. Um, sort of what, what you're just referring to, actually, I don't know if I can do a screen share here. Am I allowed to do that or is that a big no-no? Um, you can, but you'll have to describe what it is because we also have sure. audio-only people. Yeah. Yep. So uh, we actually have a um, sort of a, a shot that shows... Um, you know, what we're basically after. Um, and this is kind of the idea, if I can uh, picture this in here. Is that going to work? Oh, wow. Nope, that doesn't work me. very well at all. <laughs> I have a picture well, of you coming whether back you can you share or whether you so, can share the super things. <laughs> all right, so you should be able to see it now. It looks like it says it's sharing it anyway. Um, are you able to see the, the PowerPoint there? Mm. All right, we'll give up on that quickly. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> just tell basically me. Just what I was showing me. is it's a, it's a timeline graph that shows that basically in 19, around 1910-ish, 1920s, you had what was known as Ma Bell, and that was the manual switchboard you're referring to. You had pictures of, you know, generally women sitting in a, uh, an office manually plugging in cords from one side to another, one, one jack to another, and that's how calls used to get connected. And obviously that was horribly inefficient as the network grew, um, and more and more people had their own phone line, and they upgraded that to mechanical switches, which were literally motors that went and did the same thing. Um, and obviously motors break and aren't necessarily efficient, and they're big and they're noisy. So the next evolution was how can we take all these circuits and turn them into digital ones and zeros, but all that stuff was still proprietary. And you have to understand that it was still proprietary up until the 90s or even the two, you know, circa 2000 um, before they, it was really IP-based, right? So it's only in, you know, the late 90s, early 2000 that the carrier started saying, well, wait, we've already put all of these audio signals into little ones and zeros. What if we start turning these into standardized codecs or releasing our codecs uh, to the public or releasing our switching technologies to the public and we start opening up our networks. And the first way they did that was in wholesale. Right? The, the exchange of minutes between the carriers is what went to IP first. And why? Well, the reality is that if you make a call and your phone company is Verizon and you're calling somebody whose local phone company is AT&T or SBC, Verizon doesn't have physical equipment connecting to the line at AT&T, they have to have an agreement to exchange minutes to be able to allow for your phone call to be able to connect to the other center's uh, switch. Um, so, you know, in the process of laying all this fiber, especially during the dot-com boom before the bust, there was a lot of um, fiber being laid to increase capacity for and the carriers were a lot of the folks involved in that, and they said, why aren't we using the same fiber to run our voice calls? Um, so that was the beginning of it moving to IP, but again, that was all carriers, right? You, as a consumer, could not access this, right? So that's the slow evolution from going to the mechanical switch to digital switch to an IP switch, and after the IP switch, uh, you know, once it was IP-based, you started getting companies uh, who started basically selling this service direct to consumers or to businesses. And, you know, the only way that you can make a deal with Verizon is if you're going to go to them and say, I have, you know, one billion minutes and I want to run them over your network because that's the only way they fill their fiber. They don't fill their fiber by spending time on you with a phone call for a $25 a month circuit. Um, but if you go to them and, you know, sell and, and you buy capacity for a billion minutes, you have to fill that capacity. You may sell it to smaller and smaller people and it becomes sort of like a pyramid, right? So you have the, the uh, tier three, as they call them, guys at the bottom. They buy and sell maybe direct to consumers or businesses. They buy larger quantities from tier two who 
aggregate those quantities and make contracts with the tier one guys who actually own the circuits. Um, so hopefully I haven't lost anyone, but the, the point of the, you know, of the game, so to speak is some, you know, they're intentionally middlemen in the picture. And, um, what's different about today is that the access to the types of circuits you got when you used to go through a middleman uh, was very, very um, watered down. So, for example, in 2000, if you managed to get access to one of these larger carriers' networks, you still couldn't necessarily get all of the signaling information um, that was actually traversing the switches when a call went from an AT&T to a Verizon. There's, there's switching and signaling that happens between those switches um, that you don't get access to. And today, for about 25 bucks a month, you can get access to that signaling, which is insane. And so, in other words, what we're doing is we're replacing that last mile segment now, effectively, with IP traffic all the way out then. And we couldn't really do this 10 years ago because it would have brought in, like, a, what is it, like a T1 that has 48 uh, pairs of signals on it or something. And now we just bring in an IP channel from standard IP providers, right? That's absolutely correct, and that's exactly a perfect analogy. You used to get a PRI, and mm -hmm. you, you know a PRI was a bundling of 23 channels, and if you mm -hmm. only needed five, well, tough luck. You still had to pay the 400, 500 bucks a month to go get the PRI, and even that didn't have as much access to the core network of the actual phone company's network as today's $25 a month singles, you know, single circuit uh, channels. You can even pay per minute at a lot of carriers. They don't have any commit, and they just bill you, you know, half a cent or a cent per minute, and you can sign up immediately um, and still get that same level of functionality. And let me give you a practical example, right? Mm -hmm. um, if you have an old analog phone line or a home phone line, when you make a call, your caller ID is already set for you. Right? You, don't, you don't set your caller ID. The phone company's equipment does. When you buy $25 a month direct IP circuits, the phone company treats you as one of their you know, higher tier nodes in terms of signaling. You can set your caller ID to anything you want it to be because they trust you and are giving you direct access to their network to manipulate that caller ID. It's one of the features they provide to their bigger companies, and those features are now accessible to smaller companies. Right? So if you want to do some fancy call forwarding uh, feature where let's say you change the first three digits of the caller ID to 555 and then on your cell phone you know that this is a work call, Right? You can do that. You, you couldn't do that before with an analog line. In most cases, or in a lot of cases, I should say, you couldn't necessarily even do it with the PRI that you bought. So now you're truly getting direct access to these phone company you know, switching technologies, and people are doing interesting things with them. And okay, so you know, let, let me make sure. The name of our project. Sorry, go ahead. Yep. Let me make sure I understand this then as well, because the problem is that, you know, before I would contract with my phone company, they'd bring in either physical copper pairs or one of these PRIs. But now it's like I first contact my IP provider and I get some IP traffic to my small office, home office, or maybe even something large like the business here with three or 400 employees. And I would get a, 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 an IP trunk that I'd use for both my internet and for my phone. And then, but I still have the problem then of having to have some local equipment that then can uh, distribute and route local calls and also, you know, deal with, you know, how to dial out to the right places out on the Internet, talking to the right providers for whatever the domestic international calls would be. And this is where you guys come in, right? I'm just trying to bring it back to what we're talking about today, right? That's correct. If you are the carrier providing that voice service to one of your 
subscribers who typically was subscribing to just the data circuit from you. And you wanted to be able to bundle in voice as well so that you can sell them voice and also provide them a more complete solution and still run it over the circuit that you own that's all data. You would use our software. And our software, um, which is designed to be free so that you can get started with no capital investment, which is the big disruptive part, mm. um, you know, of what we're doing, uh, you know, basically allows you to play phone company um, because you can now access these technologies at a price level that you can resell and actually make money on. Um, and you don't have to have a thousand clients, right? This is targeted to as small as the guy who, you know, runs a small mom and pop IT shop on his own or with one other person, uh, maybe has, um, you know, 30 companies he services that each have 10 to 20 phones. To us, that's a 300 to 500 seat deal, right? So that's 500 seats there that are now using the software, which is a lot for us. Um, you know, and to him, he's able to charge 15 bucks a month, let's say 20 bucks a month to provide phone service, make some money on that. The client's getting a deal and it's all running over one data circuit. So, so yes, we basically enable small and medium sized businesses to become phone companies and they get access to software that typically has only been available to carriers for millions of dollars. Um, and we really do believe that the software is getting to the point where, it can compete with that quality level. Um, and that's a big, big deal because we give it to you for free. You can go set it up on your own. And the only time you pay for anything is if you need customizations and you can't do them on your own uh, or if you need support and you're really in a jam, right? Because we, we do you know, have to eat and whatnot, so we, we charge for our labor. But we don't charge for the software. I don't think that the, the model of charging per feature and the model of charging per port and the model of charging uh, you know, for, for the software, I think is, is antiquated, especially in the, the numbers that the telecom industry has been doing it at. You can't get a carrier grade soft switch for you know, under, under 100 grand if you're going to buy the whole thing um, from any you know, reputable vendor at this point. Um, that's, a, that's a large capital investment for a 10-person shop. That's just not going to happen. So the, uh, the so this isn't customer premises equipment. This is stuff that, uh, like, say, this company would uh, would would co contact some ISP uh, slash phone provider for uh, being able to make phone calls and redirect them to the proper places out there. So because IP traffic can be on a WAN or a LAN, you can actually mm -hmm. you can actually use our product just in the, the same old way where you have a server in the back room at an IT place, uh, mm -hmm. or excuse me, at a business, and it runs your phone system. Um, the software will work either way. What's really enabled this IP functionality is the phones. Mm -hmm. If you use any standard VoIP phone, uh, the VoIP phone doesn't care where the... Um, you know, the VoIP phone is the CPU, is the customer premise equipment, and it's like a little computer. It has IP, you know, routing abilities, whether it's over the WAN or the LAN. So while our switch enables you to be a phone company, it's the phones themselves that enable, um, you know, or that act as the customer premise equipment. And frankly, there's enough of those, and they're cheap enough at, you know, 90 or 100 bucks for a phone with an LCD monitor and everything. Um, that, you know, that's not the market that's interesting to us and, and the, the area that I think is being left behind and that there's no representation. So, um, you know, you're correct that our play is really in the, in the what people want to call the cloud, uh, you know, really an Internet-hosted play. But you mm -hmm. can put the switch anywhere. We don't really care if it's in your back office room. That's fine, too. Um, but our focus is most definitely on having a bunch of phones that sit in an office and then having a... Um, you know, a, a bunch of servers that sit in a data center uh, that do the switching and the connectivity. 
Okay, so I could actually still use this with like very little equipment on customer premises. Then all my calls would be heading out my internet connection, and even if it was to my office worker, it would be coming back in the same way, right? That's correct. You can use you can put it on an old you know uh, Dell server you have sitting somewhere. That's fine. Uh, you know if you wanted to do the hosted solution and do it on the cheap, you can find any provider like a um, you know a Rackspace or a Synapse Global or a um, you know, any, any, any other carrier, or excuse me, any other data center that provides you virtualized boxes and probably get your cost down to about 30 bucks a month to run the thing as well. Um, so it's, and this is insanely expensive for businesses who are very used to a five, $600 minimum a month telecom bill for 10, 20 employees. I mean, this is a huge, huge reduction in cost. Um, it's very disruptive. Well, okay, uh, I, I want to start a little bit about the technology now because I, I love the business part aspect of this, but I also want to have James do a little bit of the talking in this conversation. So, uh, James, what's the, what's the sort of the base technology and what open source uh, software are you leveraging to make this all work? Uh, the core components are FreeSwitch um, to do the call handling, um, RabbitMQ to do the message um, distribution, uh, CouchDB is our data store right now, and we're using Erlang to sort of tie it all together. Okay, and what made you choose those technologies, if that was your choice? Uh, well, Darren can speak more to why those decisions were made, because he made them and then brought me in to execute on them. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's all my fault. Blame me. Okay. It's all my fault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, are those best of breed? Is that why you chose those? James is being humble. He can absolutely answer these questions. Okay, go, um, James. <laughs> so, James, why don't you explain the, the advantages of sticking everything in, in the same programming language and, and uh, um, you know, why that's sort of a big deal for being able to be premised or distributed or whatnot. Okay, so um, the history of Erlang is that it was built by Ericsson and for their telecom switches. So its roots are in telecom. So it... It's a language that's um, focused on doing distributed programming and has a, it's baked into the language so you're not, you don't have to construct all of this yourself. You get it kind of for free. So it makes parallel processing so simple. Um, the pieces of technology that we use, uh, so RabbitMQ you know, is built on the AMQP standard and is used to run um, financial institutions, right? Um, Erlang was being used, I think, in that whole Goldman Sachs thing where the guy you know, stole the code. You know, it was being used in that. So it's, it's being used by high-profile, high-frequency trading companies. Um, so that kind of is a you know, vote of confidence that they're using it. Um, CouchDB, for us, the ability to replicate easily uh, was a huge selling factor. And the schema-less nature of the database is beneficial because um, what we found with a previous project was that the schema was frequently changing. And with anybody that's used MySQL and tried to do, you know, an alter table on a 10 million line or a 10 million row database or table, it gets really, uh, the performance is pretty poor. So we didn't want to be constrained in that regard. Um, so we've kind of pushed the validation and the, you know, we don't really have foreign key constraints, but um, we've sort of pushed all that into the application. And we said, you know, we need the flexibility in this in the documents to, uh, that it sort of trumps the benefits you get from 
warranty constraints and things like that. Okay, and what's the what what's the hardware platform have to be? Do I need special circuitry to talk to the telcos, or am I just using IP traffic both in and out? It's all IP both in and out. Um, we are currently targeting, uh, we have small little boxes that we're running some production stuff on. They have 512 uh, megs of RAM, so we, we want this to run on small, you know, embedded devices even. And then obviously, as your capacity grows, you can scale to larger machines if you want. But that's what we're targeting right now because we want it to be efficient to run on small machines and make it easy to scale up in small slices. But the communication with the carriers and with the customers is all IP, so you don't need any special doodads hanging off of them. Would it even work to get something, say, at uh, Rackspace or uh, Amazon EC2, and I'm saying both of these sitting at Media Temple, but <laughs> would it work to get one of those boxes to a, maybe even a Media Temple box, would it work to get that to be my telephony machine? Definitely. We actually have a couple boxes on Rackspace, uh, a couple boxes on Snaps Global, um, and a couple different providers that we're testing on. And how does the uh, how does the community work for this? Do you have a bunch of people committing, or do you have uh, just a bunch of end users that uh, don't do anything but tell you about new features? Um, so we have not released this to the broader open source community yet because we didn't want to put something out that was half baked. Uh, we have a few select partners that we're working with to do some sort of alpha testing. Um, as far as features, we are drawing on our experience with Blue Box, which is kind of the first version of this, with what uh, the community there wanted. And we're trying to um, not spend time on features that we thought were cool for Blue Box but didn't actually get used. Um, we're instead focusing on what Blue Box taught us about what people actually want and use. Okay. Um, just, so, just, so everyone has a, just so everyone has an idea, um, this is an example of the type of device we're trying to get this to run on. Let's see if I can get this to show nicely. It's just got a few simple Ethernet ports in the back. Um, you can use these for redundancy. Uh, they all can act as a LAN port. Uh, it's an embedded processor board. We didn't build this. Uh, this is just an example of a board for about 100 probably $50 tops um, that you can you know, potentially put pieces of um, this software on. And you know, one of the things we discussed when we did so we've already written a, a hosted pbx before it's called blue box it's the first iteration of this project um and that is released and it is very much community driven and there's many active people in our freenode irc channel and there's uh, some for, some google groups and forums that are that are reasonably active as well um so we know lots of people are using it uh, and we've heard the same sort of common themes um, and one of the themes was, well, VoIP might be great, but some, some of the customers that these people are trying to sell VoIP services to or implement VoIP services to, they trust their own old phone lines. They know they work. They don't want to change them. And so giving them an embedded board like this lets the PRI actually still be used um, at the client site, but you can install large portions of the software on a hosted environment uh, in, in a virtualized instance. So like your configuration UI or um, your uh, database, those things can be remote and the actual switching can take place locally. The, the of this function, of this has always been to make little tiny components out of all the carrier grade switching components, right? So 
voicemail is a component. Uh, making phones ring in a group, a ring group is a component. Being able to just route calls is a component. Um, you know, being able to have API access to be able to query the status of your system is a component. And you can take every single one of these components, including the switch itself, split it out and put it on completely separate servers. And if any one component gets hammered or, or has heavier loads than and other components, you can roll that component out multiple times. You can go through every single part of a phone system, every single part of a carrier-grade system, and said, what things break? How can we make them more durable, more robust? And how can we make it so the people who don't want them or do want them um, can pick and choose which components go into their system? Well, I understand we have Dan back after uh, apparently being missing for about 20 minutes. Some of you may not have noticed, but he's been gone. Uh, I didn't. Hello. I, he might have just I, thought he's been apologies. quiet. That's kind of quiet. We, we lost him for the call. So, um, Dan, you had a couple questions? Yeah, yeah. Um, apologies for my uh, lateness. I'll get a note from, uh, from my mother to, to hand in later. Um, yeah, I was just wondering, um, apologies if I'm over, go, going over some of the stuff you've already done because uh, I, I missed a little bit of it. But um, you were talking about installation there. So... Um, what kind of what kind of thing do I need to install this? I mean, Randall's already talked about getting some rack space uh, or something like that, getting something from rack space to try and do it. Can I install this on top of, say, a, just a Linux machine? Does it come as a distro, or how does all that work? Uh, it does come as both an ISO. We released an RPM of it for the current Blue Box install, which is the currently released product. On the newer product, we will actually have a deployment management tool um, mm -hmm. that will uh, basically let you... Uh, punch in some creds and some other information and we will auto-install it for you or you can follow the manual steps. But it, it runs on Linux to really answer your question. It should run on any flavor of Linux theoretically. Um, we tried really, really hard to keep the main dependency Erlang itself. Um, mm -hmm. So if you can get Erlang onto a box, we're even playing with putting it on a MIPS processor um, you know, for really tiny embedded boards. Uh, if we can achieve that, uh, then we've succeeded in sort of cross-platform support. Um, admittedly, the place where we probably spend the least amount of time testing is Windows. Um, we just don't get much demand for it. But um, it, I really don't have any making it work on there. Just nobody. I think we've had one person ask for it in the last three years. So, um, you know, it, it, most people are okay with installing Linux, even if it's in a VM, if they're a Windows user. Um, and so generally, if you can get it on Linux, you're good to go. Mm. So you mentioned it works on lots of different distros. Do you recommend one in particular, or, or do you try and really try and cover all of the bases? Uh, I think most of our time is spent on CentOS and or Fedora. Mm -hmm. Whichever one you want is, is, is perfectly fine. Um, we here also have some folks who run uh, Debian. I know that James has some, some opinions I'm sure he's dying to share regarding what <laughs> OS to use. Um, there, really, there are no internal wars ever in this office about which OS is more appropriate amongst a bunch of Linux engineers. That was right, okay. Well, that, that, um, sounds, uh, that sounds really interesting. So now, you, now you've tempted me. I want to know what James has to say about this. <laughs> <laughs> so, James, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, I believe the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fair no, enough. I, I think um, FreeSwitch recommends CentOS for running uh, their stuff on it, so that's typically the guideline that we've used for um, production and development. Um, but we, we chest it out. So I run Ubuntu. Um, I think a couple other people are on CentOS and Fedora. So we, we, we do try to spread it out to make sure that we're at least attempting to test it. But in, in our production so far, we've stuck to CentOS just because that's what FreeSwitch recommends. 
Mm. So do you build your own RPM packages or something for, for CentOS? And do you uh, have to maintain maintain that in a separate repository? Or is it is it something I can just kind of get and, and install separately? Uh, Darren is more familiar with that. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. So we I have a, it's okay. question. We, we do have a build <laughs> server. We do automated builds. Um, and then we do tagged releases. So uh, there is a build server. I believe it's a either hudson.2600hz.org or it's at uh, build.2600hz.org. Um, it, it's linked to from our, our website somewhere. Um, the website's getting a bit of a redo, uh, redo because it's uh, a little bit hard to navigate. But um, basically, the, the ISO itself is actually built nightly, which is kind of interesting. Um, so uh, we, we really want this to be a plug-and-play product with the ISO. Um, so... Uh, that gets rebuilt regularly. Now, you're asking questions on what's released already, I think. Um, before you joined, I sort of the products that we work on. One, a medium-sized uh, full graphical UI uh, free switch configuration tool that, that works on multi-tenant basis. The other is a tool that we're about to release, which does all the fancy stuff that we've been sort of talking about for um, the last 20 minutes, uh, which you cannot download yet. Um, it's in a, a private beta um, but it will be available. So the, the long answer to your question, unfortunately, is <laughs> if you wanted to get the older product but the more mature product um, in terms of functionality, um, you would go to the current2600hz.org page and go to the download section, and it's going to have a product named Blue Box up there. And that is um, basically a product that allows you to... Um, install and configure free switch in a multi-tenant hosting environment or a premise environment and it's going to work just fine. Um, if you want to wait, let's say a month, uh, we will be coming out with what we term a carrier grade switching solution. That's the componentized version of Blue Box where we've redone it in Erlang um, and we've made it so you can break apart all of the pieces. And the real goal there is infinite scalability. So we'll be releasing it, the way in which we will know um, that we're ready to release. The tests that we're running is we want one billion uh, completed calls in a in a call a real call simulation. Um, you know that sends real traffic with absolutely zero um, failed call completions. So we think we can get that um, probably between four and ten servers, which should give some idea of the power of the software. Um, you know, people used to talk in numbers like being able to to generate thirty calls per second. Um, was considered a pretty good number. Um, we're aiming for something like several thousand per second. So um, truly raising the bar on the scalability while we're also taking the lessons we learned on the older product in Blue Box and saying, what is it that people really cared about? What did people not care about? And how can we do it better? Um, mm. So I would, I would encourage you, if you wanted to play with this today, to go download Blue Box. Um, the places that you're going to find problems, though, is that you can't easily break out the components and that it's a much heavier stack. Um, outside of that, uh, it works perfectly fine. So, you know, the fact is, if you're not trying to put it on an embedded device, uh, you're probably going to do just fine. Um, if you want more carrier-grade flexibility or you want APIs because you want to do like a, a VoIP mashup where you can, um, let's say, have a website where people sign up and then they can provision a phone and you do it with your UI, uh, then you would want to wait about a month for the new product, which we call Whistle. Um, and that product basically allows you to um, spread out potentially hundreds or even thousands of copies of our software across different boxes and do all sorts of neat functionality with that, um, where now you're, you're sort of scaling it to, to the masses. Um, 
but both products serve a purpose, right? So one product serves a purpose of not only getting going today, but it really serves as a configuration tool for um, uh, switching software. Uh, the other tool does real-time um, manipulation of every single call. So everything's done real-time in the newer stack. And we actually manage the call from start to finish ourselves with our own uh, logic and switching software. Yeah, I'm curious, uh, what's the thing that allows it to scale horizontally? I mean, my, I'm placing the call, am I placing it to some sort of distributed address? Or do you have like some routing thing that routes to the box that's actually going to handle it? I'm, I'm, I, I don't know the technology, so I'm not sure how that works. Can you explain that? Mm-hmm. Sure. So the whistle platform is what's going to generally allow you to scale horizontally. That's the piece that's in beta, in private beta, and should be coming out within the next month. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that piece uses a combination of technologies from SRV and NAPTER records at the fundamental level on your DNS, which allows you to have. It's sort of like having a bunch of A records on a website. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a similar idea, so that you can hit lots of different servers. Once you've hit those servers. Um, you basically are able to, uh, th- those messages, once they hit the servers, they, they traverse a messaging bus, and that's what allows the horizontal scaling to, to happen in even more um, you know, broad strokes so that it can hit any thousands of boxes to actually process the logic of the call. And what do I mean when I say logic of the call? Um, you dial 415-886-7900. Uh, that phone number gets broadcast across the messaging bus and we basically ask anyone who's listening, uh, do you know how to route this phone number? And any number of components can reply and then we set up a dedicated channel that's supervised uh, between whatever's replying and whatever made the request. And we don't care where those elements are. Right, so um, you know, we, we are doing some work to make sure that geographically the closest box is actually the one that gets sort of the preference in replying, um, although some of that happens, frankly, naturally just based on latency. Um, but past that broadcast message, um, the individual components talk directly to each other over this messaging bus, and they don't bother the other tenants with their messages, uh, which allows it to scale really, really large. Um, and, and that's the idea. Does that kind of give a better overview of that? Yeah, so this is interesting. Then. Could I actually have like a box on the West Coast and a box on the East Coast? And maybe a box in Canada, and set, that I broadcast out the number to all three of those, and and whoever was like the closest or the least busy, or maybe if it was a Canadian number, the Canadian guy would definitely say I'm I'm better at this than they are. Would that be something that's absolutely that would be correct? Yep, that's absolutely correct. And we actually do that today. We have uh, this running in production in data centers in California, um, in Texas, in Chicago, and in uh, somewhere on the East Coast. I don't remember where. Um, so. Um, so we have, we have uh, call managers, we call them. They're little programs that manage the calls responding from all of those locations. And it's basically first come, first serve. Um, so if a box is particularly busy, it can actually choose intelligently not to respond at all because it's reached capacity. Um, and then the, the calls will essentially fail over. And what that gives you as well is an inherent failover strategy, right? If your entire data center goes, on, goes down in one location, because this is all IP-based traffic, it doesn't really matter. As long as the Internet itself doesn't go down, those packets are going to reach one of the records that was listed in the SRV or the, the DNS records um, to chat with, and that box is going to have the same information as the other boxes did. Um, and even that you can get granular on. You can actually, thanks to Couch, you can choose which components replicate, right? So if you want mm-hmm. customer A who's paying you a lot more money to replicate to three data centers and customer B is not paying you as much money to replicate only to one data center, you can do that. 
Um, and then the other data centers just won't respond because they don't know that phone number anyway. So they're not going to offer to route it, even if they're on the same messaging bus. And then again, you can take it a step further and you can completely split the messaging bus in half so that you have type A of customer on one half, type B of customer on the other half. Um, and now you've got yet another level of slicing and dicing for how you want to manage this horizontal scaling. And does the scaling also include high availability? I mean, would you be able to fail over an actual call in progress, or are you just failing over the ability to handle calls? So we have the ability, thanks to the free switch switching platform, which is what we use to manage the media components. Mm -hmm. um, we do have the ability to fail over um, in-progress calls. Now, that's easier said than done. Uh, there mm -hmm. are network considerations in that. Um, mm -hmm. And they get more complicated than I can probably go over in this call. Sure. Um, but the functionality is there. Uh, you need to know how to use it and how to, how to invoke it and how to um, set it up so that you're not accidentally failing over calls when you shouldn't be, which is actually the bigger risk. Uh, I mean, you really don't want to fail over all that has failed, right? Because you are going to hear some blip in the media, um, which is still better than a wireless call being dropped altogether. Um, but... Uh, it's still not good. So um, there, there is some care that needs to be taken when setting this up to ensure that you have, um, you've not caused a failover to happen when there's no failure. Now, if I was running this in a cloud, I'd have to worry about things like, um, you know, the, the, my VMs actually kicking in at the wrong times. I understand, taking this question from the chat room, actually, that there might be some jitter involved there. Do you, do you recommend doing this only on dedicated hardware, or can I actually get away with running it inside some sort of VPS? So your best bet is dedicated hardware um, for the media handlers. Now, again, the purpose of this componentization is there's a lot of things that don't care if they're on a VM or don't care if there's jitter, or don't care if there's um, some latency. And those mm -hmm. tend to be the logic processing. Um, you know, so if you have something doing, let's say it's what's called an LCR. An LCR is basically where a phone company makes deals with 10 other phone companies and they have different rates for every area code in the, in the world, really. Um, you know, they traverse a, a big, huge database for each call that's made and say, what's the cheapest carrier to use for this particular prefix that's being dialed? Um, mm -hmm. In a lot of switches, you put that software, you have to put that software in the same data center and or in the same switch, you know, in the same box as the switch uh, or do some fanciness to route the calls back and forth to get that info. Um, but you have to figure all that out, right? With this software, you take the LCR module, you stick it on a server that's somewhere that could be virtualized, but it's a lot cheaper to run and just has a database. Maybe you make six or seven copies of that um, and that you pay, let's say, 20 bucks a month for. And then you invest your two or three grand into a beefier server that you put into a data center that you run. And that's perfectly fine. You're going to get great call quality from putting the server that you own into a data center that you, you know, can manage and run. And that's your critical asset in terms of the call. And then you can offload all the processing to somewhere else. And to take that a step further, um, you know, one of the things that we are working on and that we have in, in production in, in a beta phase right now, it probably won't come out with the initial release, but it's the ability for the switch to dynamically decide whether or not it even needs to stay in the media path. So one of the things about SIP is that you can actually take the audio portion of a phone call and you can send it directly from point A to point B, which means from your phone to the ultimate final carrier. Now, since we're offering a service where people are playing carrier, but they don't really own the circuits, 
that are ultimately connected to. Um, it's a huge benefit from a bandwidth and a jitter perspective, a quality perspective, to have the calls audio go directly to the source and the, des- the destination. Kind of think of it as um, peer-to-peer calling between the final carrier and the initiating caller. And the tricks that you get into that is NAT can break that, which is network address translation, basically people's firewalls. Um, and then sometimes you need monitoring or you have other problems with a, a client and you need to capture their audio. Um, but in cases where you don't need to, you get a cost savings as well as a, a quality uh, improvement because you're not processing the media a second time when you don't need to be. You're allowing the two endpoints that are really connecting the call to talk directly to each other. And you're still in the middle for billing or for, for call handling, for transfers, for features, um, but you don't actually have to take the media on. So again, to answer that question, in a really well-set-up environment, you've bought some of your own hardware and you've taken the calls that need to have media and you've put them on those servers only. You've taken the calls that don't need any media and you've put those on cheap virtualized servers. Um, and then you've taken your logic components and you've put those also on cheap virtualized uh, servers as well. Um, So again, the cost savings is dramatic um, if you do it properly and you don't lose the quality um, in the event that you're virtualizing. Now, I'll also go a step further and say that the FreeSwitch guys have done a tremendous job making FreeSwitch, which does the media handling, um, work really, really well on virtualized servers. So as long as those servers aren't physically oversubscribed where the person selling you that server has truly stuck a bunch of clients on there and given them free reign to eat all your CPU and your disk cycles um, any time of the day, if they really have balanced it properly, you can run the media servers on a virtualized server. Um, And we do that with almost all of our clients and we don't really have any problems with it. But it took going through five or six providers to find providers who'd really optimize their systems and don't oversubscribe them excessively so that the callers have good audio quality. Um, so the, the bottom line is you have, that's part of your strategy as an implementer. And, um, you know, you have to figure some of that out. Um, but it does work. Cool. So I'm um, I'm curious a bit about licensing. Uh, if we could could talk a little bit about that, because uh, obviously this this um, solution encompasses a lot of different um, you know modules and, and parts and so on. Um, so I'm curious. Can you can you tell us a little bit uh, what license the different parts are under, which parts are, are, are free and which parts are, are paid for and so on, just to kind of clear it up for people. So we license currently the Whistle platform, uh, that's the core API and call handler, and also the Blue Box platform, which is the, um, uh, the multi-tenant hosted PBX that has a UI. Uh, they're licensed under MPL, uh, mm-hmm. that's Mozilla Public License. Um, we did that because we think it's the uh, loosest license if you want to commercialize a product based on this software. We are totally okay with that. Uh, we want mm-hmm. people to commercialize a product with this software. Uh, we want. We really don't care what you do with the software, frankly. Our, our feeling is that the software and the industry are changing so quickly that the value is in being able to keep the thing running, keeping it regularly upgraded, adding new features regularly. Um, the problem we are trying to solve is that People who start out trying to build neat uh, telecom um, software, sorry about that, uh, neat telecom software, spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to connect it to the phone network and get their thing to scale, right? Mm -hmm. So instead of building a cool application that lets you rent a rental car by a touchstone phone or via SMS, um, you might have that cool idea and you end up spending 80% of your time fixing bugs because your VoIP software doesn't work, Um, 
to me, that, that's a problem, and it needs to get solved. And it needs to get solved by taking the basic building blocks of VoIP and giving them to people and seeing what they do with it. Um, and, and that's really the problem we're trying to solve. So I think MPL gives us the loosest flexibility, and if somebody had a problem with that, we'd probably dual license it to, to make it even more flexible. Um, but it is all free and it's truly open source. Uh, one of the big differentiators between what we're doing and other companies is we are not locking you into a specific service provider. We are not locking you into a hardware platform and we are not locking you into a licensing fee. Right? So if you go to other service providers, they give you an API too and like to call themselves open source, but they require you to use their set of APIs that are, um, you know, hosted by them and then they charge you per minute for them. We do not subscribe to that model. Mm. Okay, that's, that sounds cool. Maybe we can uh, bring James in a little bit on this. I'm I'm curious about how you interact with, say, FreeSwitch and so on. Do you submit patches to FreeSwitch, and and do you have a, a you know an interaction with the other upstream projects, if you like? Um, so my involvement is mostly with uh, Mod Erlang Event, which is what allows us to get uh, interact with FreeSwitch in native Erlang terms. So mm -hmm. I've worked with the maintainer of that. Um, submitting bug reports and things like that and asking for features. Um, I've also contributed a, um, some pull requests on GitHub to some of the open source Erlang uh, libraries that we use as well. So we're, we're definitely all about sharing what we're learning with the community at large and uh, giving back. That's very cool. And can, can people get involved in, in development? Um, and uh, how, how would that work? If people, say, have an idea or a feature request or a bug or something, how do they, how do they come to you guys and, and get involved and, and uh, help make it better, if you like? Um, so right now we have a very active channel at, um, on Freenode for IRC at 2600 HZ. Um, and there, people are more than welcome to come on there and talk to us in real time. Uh, we have five or six people in the office pretty much from like nine in the morning to sometimes nine at night, um, Pacific time. And then the community at large is also pretty uh, competent and able to answer a lot of questions as well. Um, the website's getting redone. It's going to be easier to navigate. Um, we have JIRA for doing bugs and things like that. So uh, we try to make it as easy as possible to find information on how to fix bugs or um, if you can't find it, to get in touch with us to fix things. Yeah, that, that sounds very cool. I mean, you, uh, you may have answered this one already, but I was going to ask you how many people actually work on the project, uh, say, full-time at the company and also outside. You mentioned six people in the office. Is that right? Um, so we have, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven... <laughs> Uh, we're, we're probably at about nine or ten people, um, three, three really full-time engineers and two ops guys, and then Darren kind of flips about and does stuff occasionally. <laughs> mm. It sounds like the phone's going there already. Somebody's after some, some customer yeah. support. Um, <laughs> so he's keeping busy. Uh, that's, that's very cool. So um, do you, how, many, uh, how many kind of customers do you have using this, and who are some of the big clients that... Um, that, that would be using your uh, software at the moment? Uh, I'm probably going to have to take that one. So, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, our biggest client we can't actually uh, discuss. Um, so, they, they're building a product that, that they're going to release under their brand name, um, which is fine by us. Uh, they, they are essentially helping to um, you know, kickstart this project and, and get things off the ground uh, in exchange for being a very early adopter of Whistle. 
that's one of the reasons that it's not um, uh, public yet because uh, you know they they sort of wanted first dibs at it, and we said okay. Um, but the um, uh, but they've been very good and, and basically allowed us to run it and, and give us full control over that portion. Um, but the uh, other sort of companies are there's like a. Well, yeah, that's the problem because I don't know if I'm allowed to mention a lot of them yet. It's really up to them to. to <laughs> I, I cannot. I, I probably skip the names, and I'll, I'll say that the one of them is a very large carrier um, uh, that you know does a lot of switching of minutes uh, down in Texas. And basically, what they do is they aggregate uh, all these different contracts that they have with big carriers that cover different portions or regions of the United States. And then they sort of simplify the pricing and the, the switching for their customers. Um, so that's, that's been a big partnership that we're super excited about. Um, we have a lot of small hosted customers uh, who just want, again, to install at 10 or 20 sites. Um, and that's probably been our most popular play right now is, um, is with Bluebox having people install that on, on multiple servers. Um, there are, you know, you ask our customers, remember that we don't really sell the service direct to clients. We want other people to do that. So we, we kind of consider them more mm. of partners. So I can tell you that we, we have a partner named Synapse Global who will host this for you. Um, you know, we've worked with uh, uh, some other firms uh, to do the same. And they'll be releasing uh, copies of Blue Box that they host well for you. Uh, actually, within the next couple of weeks, um, one of them is a publicly traded company. So uh, this is just a cloud services division there. So they will be releasing coming out in a, a bunch of different places. Um, and it, it won't be hard to figure out who our customers are once you <laughs> excellent you Google for announcements on. I don't know that we toss around customer names too often, um, just because it's it's really their their brand name. It's very cool. I'm just, I'm just wondering, uh, you know, not that Vonage would do this, but is this, do you, do you envision this scaling up big enough that, say, Vonage could replace, or Vonage, whatever their name is, it's not French, Vonage, if Vonage could replace their entire infrastructure <laughs> with something like this? I mean, is this the sort of goal that you want to be able to scale to? That is absolutely our goal. Uh, we absolutely target that you should be able to get a million subscribers on this new platform um, really without – I mean, you'll have to plan it. It's not, it's not going to be plug-and-play for that large an install, but it should be pretty close. Um, put it this way. The, the individual components have been designed for that. Uh, we will probably need to release guides and other instructional information on how to actually pull it off. Because um, you know we all sit and, and eat and drink this all day, and we, we think it's easy, but I'm sure there's going to be people who don't understand it who are trying to implement it. So um, it'll take some time before I can answer that question. That yeah, you could sit down and go get a million clients and just hit a few buttons. Um, you know, one of our goals is to provide a management interface where you can um, do the scaling automatically, and that's really the big play that we hope will keep the open source project alive so that we can pay our employees for people who have gotten big enough um, where they really need a way to uh, scale. And again, they don't want to spend the time on it. Um, but if you're a hobbyist or a tinkerer or getting started or really sharp or no Erlang, you should be able to do the whole thing on your own uh, and, and not pay a penny and, and basically just contribute bugs and patches back um, and, and to keep it going. Um, so, but the ultimate goal is, yes, we, we absolutely believe that you should be able to put a million subscribers on this platform at the end of the day. Uh, we absolutely believe that um, the calls and the call volume is the more important piece, and that's where we're spending a lot of our time. 
Um, and again, we don't consider this uh, a release candidate until we've routed a billion calls within a month, uh, a month's time on virtualized hosted servers uh, without the thing crashing and without the thing having any call completion errors. That's a reasonably high, lofty goal for an open source project that's coming out of the gate. So, um, so I think it, it speaks volumes for... And, uh, and another thing to look at here, I'm just uh, sort of curious, uh, my mind's particularly thinking about, about <clears throat> the disaster in Japan recently. Is this the sort of thing also that, say, a, a small country or a regional government could actually use, uh, the, use 2600 hertz boxes to actually be the telephone company for an area? Yep, we've actually had a request for that, which I was pretty surprised at this early in the game. Um, so one of, I mean, the requests come in, <laughs> you know, it's the engineers who find us in the world of open source, not the, the CEO or the CTO in some cases or otherwise in a lot of mm -hmm. cases. Mm -hmm. Typically, the engineer finds it they, this while they're trying to solve a problem, and then they say, oh, uh, we should use this. Then they stick it in 10, 20 of their boxes, and then management finds out about it and says, well, why aren't we using this for everything? So, um, you know, we have gotten one of those requests in that, in that methodology, uh, you know, uh, sort of going up the ladder that way, so to speak. I don't know if it's going to pan out, um, but it is for a, for a, a government in um, uh, South America who's, who's interested uh, in using us to provide their VoIP services. Uh, we've also had some in, in interesting contacts in Australia. They're not necessarily government-related, but if you're familiar with Australia Telecom, uh, they are trying to diversify um, just as we have competitive carriers in the U.S., have not had that. They've had a closed network with one, one or two companies, and they're mm -hmm. trying to open that up through regulation. And it's leading to a lot of people trying to figure out how to start phone companies. So I kind of consider that uh, an emerging market, if you will, as well, although not so much government-sponsored, where they're sort of playing around with us. Very cool, very cool. Well, we're just about out of time, so I just wanted to ask the uh, usual question of both of you, and well, the usual two-part question, <laughs> Emacs versus VI, and do uh, you have anything last to say uh, That's an uh, awesome before, question. Uh, before the end of the show? So I'll start with, uh, start with James. Go ahead, James. Uh, Emacs, VI, and what's your, any last things you want to say? Uh, Emacs, definitely. Woohoo! Um, All right. And I've, actually, <laughs> I've actually converted uh, one of the other engineers to Emacs for his Erlang stuff, so... He, he was VI, oh. but now he does Emacs for the airline. <laughs> and any last thing you want to tell our audience while you have the mic? I don't uh, think you realized how heated a question that was you just asked in this office. <laughs> I really don't think you know what you got into there. Go, James. <laughs> um, I, don't, I think we're having a lot of fun doing this. I think we're all really passionate about it. Uh, we really think we will change the world with this. And uh, we are definitely, you know, it's kind of hippie. For sure, you know, we definitely want to give back and have the community be involved as much as possible. So we kind of look uh, at ourselves as the co-op of VoIP, you know, yeah. co-op <laughs> of telecom services. We, we people who can chip in and help, whether it's financially or otherwise. We we work really well with those folks. People who just want to use it, that's fine too. Um, you know, and we seem to be staying afloat quite well on that that methodology. So. Um, it's been very successful for us. We're, we're very progressive as a team, and, and I agree with James. I think the stuff we're doing is very disruptive, and it really breaks down a lot of these walls in telecom um, that have just been around for so long. And what a great thing when so many more people are getting you know, handheld devices and, and starting to see that the phone can do more than just call two people and coming up with creative ideas to use the phone network. It is still the largest network in the world. 
there are more endpoints that are phones than there are internet endpoints to this day. Um, and that's, that's a huge statement when you're taking the, the switching equipment that used to run that network and you're giving it away. It's a really big deal. Mm. Absolutely. Well, on that note, sounds like a great place to end the show. Um, I'm probably cutting in and out because my Wi-Fi is going bad here, but I just want to thank both you guys for being on the show today and coming in and talking about the 2600 Hertz project. We have uh, um, uh, Darren Schreiber, uh, who's sort of the uh, top dog over there, and uh, James Aymati, Aymanetti, uh, one of the <laughs> developers, something like that. <laughs> thank you guys for being on the show. Thanks, guys. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks very, very much. Good. Very good. So what do you think, Dan? Yeah, really, really interesting. I was uh, fascinated about the, uh, the the talk about using this in uh, developing nations, like they were talking about in South America, perhaps. And you mentioned Japan, of course. Um, it could be a really big, um, a really big um, resource for those kind of uh, people, especially with the rebuilding efforts now in Japan and and other places. Well, you know, it's it's like I do a lot of work in South America, and it's really sort of amazing when I see that the uh, like the uh, the Brazilian government and a bunch of other governments are having this really pro open source stance for multiple reasons. But th- but the main reason being, first, the cost is lower because you have shared development and shared resources. But second, mm-hmm. that it can be customized for doing exactly what they want to do. There's no software off the shelf that does exactly what you want. So being able to customize it, make it work well for the existing situations. And like for example, like it, let's say they use this for some part of the infrastructure to rebuild part of Japan there, part of the, uh, the, in the northern uh, the cities that have been most affected, and they got something mm-hmm. quickly out there. They could make it so that some of the certain phone numbers are automatically free, uh, you know, and, and quickly program that into the switches, whereas something that may be off the shelf might not be able to be so easy to do that. Um, so, yeah, I'm hoping, I'm hoping this all works out and helps them out for that. Yeah, it, it sounds like a project with a big future. There's no doubt about that. Um, I was interested when I was trying to ask, uh, trying to probe for a bit of information about customers, which is always uh, always controversial. But they were saying in the very near future, you will see us everywhere. So uh, let's hope that's true. Absolutely, absolutely. Speaking of seeing things you see everywhere, we have a number of upcoming guests. Isn't that a great? I love the transition I get to make like that all the time. I just got to make up whatever the transition has to be. So um, I did start my Q2 scheduling, so I've got a bunch of new people to talk about. But let me first talk by saying that next week I'll be back on the show again from this very same location, hopefully not on Wi-Fi. We're going to fix that for sure. I'm uh, going to talk to Gilad Braca about Newspeak. Newspeak is uh, a new language development, sort of loosely small talk based. Gilad Braca has done a lot of stuff in the Smalltalk community, but more about actually being able to sandbox things in so each compilation unit only gets access to the things it really needs to do its work. So, uh, I mean, for example, the display screen stuff doesn't need to talk to the database, so why should have the access to the database globals? And he's really got some good research being done on that. Going to be great to talk to him next week. Just added to the schedule, again, if you're following my tweets, you'll be seeing that I've added all these people just recently. We've got David Wheeler, who's volunteered to come on to talk about open source software at the Department of Defense, U.S. Department of Defense. Apparently, there's a lot of open source software being used there. I know some of you are going to have mixed reactions to this show, but that's just the way it is. I, I for one, am glad that they're using open source software to reduce the cost of the tax money I have to pay for all that stuff. So I'm really going to be excited to talk to him about that. Just also added to the schedule, Jason Huggins. Some of you know his name from being the creator of the Selenium Web Testing Framework, though, being able to test browsers all the way down to the retail level. He's got a company called Sauce Labs. It's commercializing some of that. He's going to talk about the commercial side of 
what he's doing, but more importantly, the origin and the history and the current directions for Selenium. So that's going to be a really fun show. Emil Ivov, I hope I'm pronouncing this right. I should have got a pronunciation guide for all these guys. Emil Ivov is going to talk to us about Jitsi, which is the formerly called SIP Communicator. Uh, this is sort of the other end of today's conversation. You know, what do you have on your desk to be able to talk to one of these uh, uh, VoIP boxes? So this is some really great software there, full top-to-bottom stack of doing audio and video, all open source. Philip Brown, Ben Walton, going to talk to us about OpenCSW. CSW uh, is the uh, Solaris uh, packaging system. So this is the open site that hosts uh, open source uh, and open repositories for the Solaris system. Uh, and then we've got some open slots, still booking them in. More announcements next week. But uh, down towards the middle of June, I'll be talking to Curtis Jewell, who I met last year, probably before that as well, at Yapsi. He's going to talk to us about Strawberry Pearl, which is the version of Pearl that is specifically targeted for Windows and has all the same installation tools that standard Pearl has rather than being that weirdo thing that Active State had for a while, PPMs and stuff. And then down towards the end of June, we've got Sirit... Uh, I'm going to be able to mispronounce this. Sitaram, Sitaram, Chamart, Chamarte... Oh, he's going to get mad at me for mispronouncing these. <laughs> he's going to talk to us about Gitolite. Now, most of you heard of GitHub, but GitHub is really not open source. It hosts a lot of open source projects, but it isn't open source itself. There's an equivalent version of that called Gitolite, which duplicates a lot of the GitHub functionality, but you could run it internally to a company or share it amongst group. There's also public instances of Gitolite. So that's going to be really great for those of you that use Git are really going to want to stay tuned for that one. So that's what we got. A lot of other people on the short list uh, as well. We're just uh, scheduling them in. Q2. That's the way it works one quarter at a time. I found that more efficient for my scheduling needs. Uh, if you want somebody on the list that isn't on the list yet, wow, I actually said that right the first time. <laughs> no, 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 no. Let's just rewind this tape. We've got to be able to ruin that. If there's somebody on the list that you don't see, there we go. All right. <laughs> <laughs> If you see and, people who aren't there. <laughs> yeah, right. Then you may be that boy from Sixth Sense. But uh, yeah. <laughs> now I'm going to be able to finish the show. If you want somebody on the list that isn't there, have the project leader email me, Merlin at Stonehenge.com. That's how they get on there. Uh, you can also, um, I mentioned earlier in the show, I took some questions from the chat room. We tape this show live, typically, um, well, live. We do tape it live. <laughs> <laughs> typically at 9.30 in the morning, Pacific time, whatever time Leo has on his clock. And yes, it doesn't line up with UK time exactly, does it, Dan? <laughs> no, it doesn't today. No, I apologize. Um, I, I thought we were a consistent kind of, I think it's uh, eight hours difference, but it seems today it's seven hours difference, so... Yeah, Apologies. it's okay, Dan. It's it's okay. We we may do as well. Uh, you can follow yeah. me on Twitter at Merlin, M-E-R-L-Y-N. You'll find out where I'm at. Like this week, I'm in L.A., as you can tell by the background here. Maybe not, but that is L.A. right there. Um, <laughs> and uh, I do a lot of things locally. In fact, I'm going to the uh, the Linux, no, the Linux, not the Linux, the Los Angeles Pearl Users Group meeting tonight. They're going to have some really cool stuff there, so you can hang out with me there. Uh, Dan, you're doing some music stuff still. How's that going along? And then tell us what else you want us to know about you. Uh, yeah, yeah. One of the the big things I'm I'm uh, busy with at the moment is uh, I do a music uh, podcast and radio show called Rat Hole Radio, and uh, mm -hmm. every year we do a live event, uh, a live gig. And this year's event is coming up on the 24th of April. Uh, that's Sunday, the 24th of April. Uh, it's actually Easter Sunday in the UK. Um, so if any uh, listeners are, are in the UK or if you want to travel over for the uh, for the gig, you'd be You'd be more than welcome. Uh, the tickets are five pounds, uh, British pounds, and uh, we've got three great Creative Commons bands playing on the evening. And there's going to be all kinds of people mingling and having fun. And it's in Liverpool in the UK. So if you go to ratholeradio.org 
slash gig. You can buy tickets there and uh, get hear some of the music, hear some of the bands, check them out before you come down, and uh, try before you buy. I suppose it's, it's the way to uh, the way to pitch it. Um, <laughs> apart from that, obviously, uh, we've got Linux Outlaws, which is on every week on Monday nights. Usually, that's UK time. I don't know what time that is now for you. I'm all lost, <laughs> but um, <laughs> it's sometime uh, in the afternoon for uh, folks on the East Coast and generally uh, kind of lunchtime-ish early in the morning, uh, late in the morning, I should say, for people on the West Coast. Uh, it's on uh, every every Monday live, linuxoutlaws.com uh, is the place to go. You can find the streams there. We talk about open source news, uh, Linux, obviously, uh, as the title would suggest, and lots of other things. And if you want to find any of my personal stuff, Twitter links, all of that kind of stuff, uh, identical links, you can go to uh, danlynch.org and all the details are there. Well, Dan, again, it's good to have you. No, there you go. Okay, it's good to have you again across the mic from me instead of uh, co-hosting for me, hosting for me, I should say. I really appreciate you doing it, as I said in the open of the show. But, uh, you know, there are some opportunities coming up. So if I haven't totally burned you out, you might be hosting some more shows. Just wanted to let you know. As long as we can get on the same time, I'll be right there. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to be the running gag for this week. I can already see. Well, uh, I'm just about on my list. I'm just about out of time. So I just want to say what I normally say to our audience every week. I appreciate you listening to the show and tell your friends. And uh, we'll see you again next time on Floss Weekly. Hi, this is Randall Schwartz, host of Floss Weekly. This week, Dan Lynch joins me, not as a co-host, but as a ho. (laughs) (laughs) As a ho. (laughs) Sorry, I'm I'm still online. Did you just call me a ho? (laughs) I think we need to discuss that offline. (laughs) I know what's going in the outtakes. (laughs) 